Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. In this episode, we speak with retired U.S. Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Chad McCoy, a special operator who served as a PJ, that's pararescue, with the 66th and 33rd Squadrons of the Air Force Special Operations Command. Chad then went on to serve with the 24th Special Tactics Squadron of the Joint Special Operations Command. Throughout his military career, Chad was part of the cadre of specialists that serve as the rescue response for U.S. military services. Their motto is, that others may live. We discuss the extensive training and advanced skills required to be a PJ in the special ops community, and how that training has evolved over the years, and how today's operators need to be multifaceted and adaptable for multi-domain operations. We all know that special operations is sensationalized in Hollywood movies. Chad shed some light on the mystique of special operations as he shares his journey on what it means to be a Tier 1 operator working with SEAL teams, high-end army units, as well as conducting clandestine operations. Chad's first-hand insight was gained through his 17 combat search and rescue deployments in various theaters of operation around the world. Chad went on to work at the Doolittle Institute, an innovation institute which supports the Air Force Research Lab Munitions Directorate. It is here where Chad saw issues which small businesses face when dealing with the Department of Defense, and where he reinforced his view on the need to iterate quickly for the needs of the warfighter. Today, Chad is the co-founder of Firestorm Labs, an innovative company focused on rapid production of modular, low-cost, adaptable weapon systems which are geared for the highly dynamic nature of modern warfare. One might think special operators are full of ego, and sure, some are. But throughout our conversation, you'll hear Chad speak with humility, a quality which I feel makes for an honest and forthright discussion. So welcome everyone to Go Bold, and let's get at it. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I am your host. And today, I'm very happy to have as a guest, Chad McCoy, who served with the U.S. Air Force in the U.S. Air Force Special Operations Command, so AFSOC, and he also served in the Joint Special Operations Command. Chad has a wealth of experience in being a special operator, which is of great interest to me because he is actually the second special operator that I'll have the opportunity to speak with. The first one being Lieutenant Colonel Rob Marshall, who flew the MC-130 and the CV-22 Osprey. Um, in addition to his special operations work, Chad is now the co-founder and vice president of business development at Firestorm Labs. So we'll have a wonderful opportunity to speak about what he's doing today and using some of the experience and skills that he's learned through service to help giving the warfighter added capabilities hopefully in a manner that supports all the different domains. So Chad, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. 
Awesome. Thank you. So as I do with all of my guests, I start by asking what made you join the military and what made you pick the branch that you did? Yeah. So um, me and my siblings and as well as my cousins, I, you know, we spent a lot of summers, you know, dressing up in camouflage and playing in the woods and um, using sticks as guns. And, uh, you know, I think all of us were enamored by uh, the military. Uh, my grandfather served in World War II. He was a tank commander um, under Patton and uh, pretty distinguished service. Uh, my father was in the army. Uh, his brother was in the army. And so we had, a, you know, my other grandfather was in the Navy in World War II. And so it's in our bloodline. So there was no expectation to join the service, but um, it's certainly, um, you know, the way it was depicted in movies growing up, uh, it made it glamorous. Um, and and that's what I really expected to get out of my military experience. And, and I think it, uh, for me at least, it didn't disappoint. So, Right on. Well, so you have that kind of interest, that innate interest. Uh, what made you pick the Air Force as, as the branch? Yeah, so... Um, you know, I, I thought about joining the army um, initially. Just you know, you, you hear about Rangers, and uh, this is you know pre nine eleven. So um, I was a young man living in Hawaii. I was a surfer and you know, skateboarder, and um, you know, I wanted to do something fun. I knew I wanted to jump out of airplanes and do you know commando stuff. Um, and pre nine eleven, pararescue was a job that was always kind of employed. They were always doing rescues, whether there was a conflict or not. And so um, you had, you know, kind of the general purpose forces that, that would train for war and potentially would never get, you know, mobilized or deployed within their career. And a lot of people saw that in the 80s and 90s. Um, but the, the pararescue career field was, you know, doing civilian rescues if they weren't deployed overseas, you know, rescuing pilots in combat. And so, um, and when I looked at the brochure, you know, you see these mountain men on there and you see, you know, guys scuba diving and jumping out of airplanes and, and shooting guns and, yeah, it looked like a, a good fit, um, you know, but initially there was a, a really high attrition rate for pararescue. And so, um, you know, I was a scrawny kid from Hawaii, you know, surfer kid, uh, didn't know how to eat or run or, or swim. I, I know how to swim, you know, to save my life, but I wasn't proficient at it. And so um, that's that's how the, the Air Force, uh, you know, got me to, to join that service, you know, vice the other ones. Um, but there was, candidly, there's a lack of knowledge on the other ones too. Um, and perhaps my choice would have been different if it was post 9-11, you know, kind of looking at the services as a menu, um, you know, what would I have chosen probably would have been a little bit different, but. Right, right. And so you went Air Force and pararescue. So what is that training like? Like, talk me through that process, because I'd love to kind of know sure. how you act to get up to speed. Yeah. So um, before I joined the military, you know, they, there's certain guys that say, hey, I want to be this, uh, you got to go through a, a, a basically like a pre-screening and that pre-screening took place. I, I did it in Honolulu um, with a, a combat controller down there. And, you know, you had to run like, I think it was like a mile and a half. You had to do a 500 meter swim. And it was just basically an entry bar to say, Hey, look, these are identified folks that are going to get a chance to go into this, this, uh, this pre-screening. Right. So once you get through basic training, all those folks and also, you know, kids that were in you know basic training decided you know raise their hand. They want to be PJs. Um, could try out. And so you go do what we called an indoctrination course. And so we called it indoc and indoc was, you know, kind of like the, the assessment selection for folks um, to screen a large number of, of you know, entrants uh, or candidates uh, to go into a two-year pipeline of training. And so that first indoc program was 10 weeks long. And so it incrementally got harder and harder. You know, there was, you know, the hell week in there at week three screened a lot of people out. Uh, we started with, I think it was over a hundred people in the beginning and we graduated eight in my class. And so 
Wow. And it was pretty typical, you know, it's pretty, pretty much an 80, you know, 80 plus attrition rate, uh, percentage uh, attrition rate. And, um, you know, and I think every course within the military likes to, you know, beat their chest and say they're the hardest. Um, I don't know that we're the hardest, you know, that was very difficult. And, um, you know, and of those eight guys, they all went on to have really, uh, I guess, illustrious maybe is, uh, is hyperbole, but uh, really successful careers and, and did a lot of great things. And, um, you know, really put their metal to the test. And so after those, you know, eight guys, initially we'd go to the special forces combat dive school at Key West with the army, um, do that. That was like the hardest course in the pipeline. And, and basically would whittle out those eight guys and, and perhaps somebody failed out. You hadn't invested two years of training. Um, all our guys, you know, passed through and a lot of them were, you know, top swimmers in the class. So you, you get your scuba bubbles, what they call it. So you're a, your army or combat diver. Um, then we go to airborne school. So you had to learn how to jump out of an airplane attached to the, you know, to a rope, dope on a rope kind of thing, static line. Um, after that, you go to free fall school, learn how to jump, uh, skydive. And these are courses that typically it takes a long time in the military to get to. And so, you know, I was a 19 year old in the pipeline and my scuba buddy at, at dive school was, you know, he was a E7 in the army, you know, late thirties, he worked his butt off to get there. And here I was some punk kid that, um, you know, was in the best shape of my life at the time, but, uh, you know, I, I really hadn't earned my way there the same way they had. And so, um, I think a lot of the older army guys kind of rolled their eyes at us cause we we're just a bunch of punks, but, um, <laughs> uh, go through survival school, dunker training. Um, I went to medical course at Fort Bragg, which was, uh, the special operations medical course down there. And, um, initially the air force guys were going through with the army. So the army's 18 deltas, their special forces medics. So I went through that. So, and then go to pararescue school and you put everything together and you learn a lot of ropes, rescue, cutting, you know, extrication and basically combining all those employment skills. So, you know, jumping and parachuting into the water and, you know, the Zodiacs and then fighting those. And, um, but really, you know, you go through all this training, you go through two years of training, you get to your first team and you don't know anything and you're still, right. you know, they call us pups when you get there and you're a pup, you don't know what you're doing. Yep. You still need mentorship. You still need to understand, um, you know, the kind of the dynamics of, of what goes into planning a rescue or all those, all those things. And, and I had the benefit of not going directly to war after, you know, it was in the late nineties. And so I, I kind of got a breather, right? So I got to come to a unit, I got to grow up a little bit um, and, and kind of have a, I guess a better head on my shoulders going into you know, some of those combat experiences that the generation behind me didn't, you know, they went straight from school, you know, courses and, and going on the line and, so I, I probably, yeah, I probably needed that. I needed that maturity and, and to kind of grow up a little bit before I was handed a, you know, a rifle and, and told to go to war. But, um, but yeah, that's the kind of synopsis of the training. Interesting. How does the reality meet with the expectations? So, you know, as you join, you have an idea of what you want to do. You know, you're going through this training. Um, is the training adequate in terms of what the reality is operationally? I don't think it ever would be, you know, especially for a young guy. So later on in my career, you know, I'll kind of go into when I went to the unit at the Joint Special Operations Command, that training um, became incredible training based on, you know, combat um, after actions reviews and the training pipeline, because I ended up running it later on in my, my career um, was excellent. And it did the, it, it came the closest to preparing guys as, as best as we could, you know, to step out the door. But initially, um, especially in the nineties. And I'm sure this, you know, exists within the aviation communities as well is that, 
you didn't have a lot of combat experience teaching you. And so, you know, it's a lot of the blind leading the blind. And so they were giving us the best, you know, they, or the, the things that they thought were the most important and you know, or most appropriate. But really when guys started deploying all the time, a lot of those things changed. I mean, the, the training is very different now. Um, you saw the basics, you know, you saw the kind of the foundational skills, but um, when you talk about tactics or employment, um, those things have been refined and they should, and they should continue to refine even outside of conflict of, you know, Afghanistan shutting down, um, you know, kind of Iraq uh, going away from active, you know, combat. And if they don't, they're going to miss a huge opportunity to continue to evolve and remain the most lethal uh, and capable force on the planet. So. Yeah, I, I think that's incredibly important. Uh, you know, if if you do not evolve or continue to evolve, then you know uh, <laughs> you will be left behind. And um, yeah. and yeah, I think as the United States military, as you said, being the most combat capable force on the planet, um, you have to stay ahead of the curve. And I think and, the- and technology makes that difficult too, and it it really does. And you know, you think about the technology we empower guys with on the battlefield today. When I was, I mean, I, I barely had a radio when I went to my first team, you know, I got a bunch of ammo and, and a med ruck. Now they're expected to kind of have awareness of the entire battlefield and multi-layers of ISR and cast platforms and, you know, infill, exfill, and everything is, you know, digitized on a, you know, common operating picture. And it's complicated, you know, and it's a different level of uh, technical uh, awareness that, that took me a long time to grow into. And perhaps this next generation of folks that are joining the military may become a little bit more prepared just because of competencies that they have just on, you know, dealing with devices all day. And, um, you know, I mean, I didn't have a cell phone when I joined the military. So when cell phones were kind of integrated into operations, obviously I had one, but um, it wasn't as intuitive as it is for, uh, I guess, this generation. So, you know, perhaps maybe it's not that steep of learning curve. Well, for sure. I think the youth of today are, are much more adept at handling all of these pieces of, of technology. But um, do you think that that also puts a greater burden on the special operator? Because now, you know, you've got to be able to manage all of these different pieces of kit. Like, at what point does it become too much? It does. Yeah, absolutely. You lose awareness. So in, in creating, you know, this overwhelming, you know, uh, technical awareness, you lose situational awareness on the battlefield, I think. Um, Isn't that counter to what the objective is, is that to have all of this kit, you're supposed to be more situationally aware. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, they did a study, I forget which university it was, but, uh, you know, we, we would wear headsets with, you know, two different frequencies of communication chatter in your ears, you know, so you have and so combat controllers, or, or if you're a leader like I was, you'd have two different radios and they'd be going to both ears at the exact same time. And we thought that we were really good at multitasking, but it turns out your brain can't do two things at once. It's prioritizing very effectively to say, hey, this is more important. My brain's going to pay attention to this ear over this. Right. And so, you know, when you have that much information coming at you, and then you also have, you know, situational awareness in front of you on a screen and you're deciding, you're trying to make decisions in combat. Um, there's a time to shut that off and act. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I think the combat controllers, you know, so my counterparts in the air force, the guys that have maximum situational awareness, cause they're, they're controlling those aircraft. Um, they do an excellent job at that, but I mean, I've, I've been in gunfights where all of us were shooting and, you know, the combat controller has, you know, noise canceling headsets on with two radios and he's controlling aircraft, but he doesn't realize that there's rounds being, you know, fired all around him. And so, you know, you do lose a bit of that. Um, 
you know, it doesn't happen all the time, obviously, those are kind of extreme situations, but, um, but it, it does exist. And I'm sure it exists for pilots as well, you know, in the cockpit, you know, increasing all the technology they have at their disposal, uh, eventually you got to fly the airplane and, and shoot your guns and, and drop bombs. So um, it exists the same way for the operator. Um, but to your question, yeah, I think it's, um, it's, uh, it's in excess within special operations because of the, uh, the tools that they're given. Um, you know, they have better equipment than ever, everyone else by design. Um, and so, you know, with that, uh, I mean, MVGs are a good example. You know, when you clip on a thermal to it, so now you have night vision on one, a thermal on the other eye. Now you have two radios in each year. Um, you also have a heads up display. You have a weapon now with, you know, two different lasers. Um, you have infrared, you know, targeting on your weapon as well. And so you, you start adding all these different components. Um, it's a lot, you know, it's, and your brain has to, you have to be high functioning. And so we didn't screen guys initially to be, you know, these, uh, <laughs> um, you know, these, these really uh, intellectual operators at a higher level they do. And so when you go to, you know, what they call the tier one units where I spent about 18 of my years, um, we are looking for the smarter guys. We are looking for the guys that can critically think, uh, can make good decisions very quickly. Um, those guys are, are, are cut above. I mean, being big and strong and, and shooting really well is important. Um, that's an expectation that you have those foundational skills, but taking a bunch of information and making a good decision off of that um, is, you know, what we kind of consider the varsity level. And so, you know, there's lots of guys that can carry heavy things and break things, but to be able to do that and make, you know, really good decisions within chaos is, is the advanced skills that are really essential when you're working at a really high level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned tier one. So for those of us that perhaps are not familiar with how AVSOC or Joint Special Operations Command teams are structured, how would you describe it? So we get an appreciation for the different skill sets or the skill levels. So there, I mean, used to be, um, you know, kind of like a badge of honor to be a tier one guy. And all that means is it's just a it's a, you go through another selection process and you're taking the best, the best, the best and going up there and training them more. And they're on the, you know, the, the very tip of the spear as far as missions go. Um, and so, you know, there's several units that exist within that arena. Um, and, you know, they're basically, they're selecting candidates for those units uh, from the best of special operations. And so uh, they, they used to say white soft, black soft, all these, all these different terms over the years, but um, really it comes down to, you know, tier one is, uh, you know, the folks that are, uh, have gone through multiple selections and they're doing really high-end missions. Usually it's uh, centered around hostage rescue and, and missions that the president directs. Um, because even though the movies make it sound like everyone in special operations is like jumping out of airplanes in the middle of the night and, and going and rescuing people, uh, that doesn't exist. I mean, those are really, really high-end skills that require a ton of training and a ton of assets to carry out. And so, uh, it's sensational to watch it on movies, but the reality is there's only a handful of people that, that have ever done those missions. And that, that is tier one, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you have me fascinated because from a civilian perspective, our context is Hollywood, right? Which yeah. should never be a baseline, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, might have, might give you a little snippet of stuff, but it's not, uh, not reality. So the question is, is that, you know, when you are directed to do things like hostage rescues and what have you, are these tier one units in various locations throughout the world all the time? Or do you get tasks like, Hey, this is happening here and saddle up, you know, you, we got to go there. 
Yeah, there's people ready at all times to do do things everywhere in the world. Um, yeah. and that's about as, as, as specific as I'll be. But yeah, um, I will tell you that um, you know their ability to reach um, you know mission spaces, operation operational areas. Um, there's no limitation to it, and so um, you know we talk about the the United States and its uh, combat capability. I think that's one of the most uh, remarkable ones. And, and it's not just the guys that are carrying the, the rifles and, and, you know, going and, and doing those things. It's all the, a ton of resources that come into moving people. Right. And so, you know, the C-17s that, you know, will fly, you know, helicopters that are folded up and flying across the world. Um, and those guys and gals are on alert, you know, just like the, the guys, uh, you know, doing the hostage rescue. And so uh, it's a team effort, you know, and I'll tell you those, those helicopter crews, um, you know, the night stalkers, you know, I'm sure you've seen Black Hawk down, Mm -hmm. uh, and they, they actually flew for that movie, but um, they are everything you hear. I mean, all of the uh, all the mystique and, and the legend is is true. They are they're the best in, in the in the service. And so, um, I've seen the most uh, incredible uh, displays of heroism from those pilots. You know, yeah, under fire, holding a hover over you know one wheel on a rooftop, or guys you know, exfil um, doing gun runs down you know the middle of the street because um, you know the guys need it, putting their lives on the line every single time. And they were deployed a lot. I mean, you look at SOF and everyone thinks about operators, but those aviators at the 160th were, I mean, at one point they were doing like 45 on, 45 off, you know, into perpetuity. And um, it's a grind. It's not a year deployment like some of the conventional forces were doing, but, you know, when they're home, they're training too. And so it's not like they're off. And uh, so we, we know we've had a grind over the past 20 years. Um, and we've really had a chance to to sift, I guess, you know, the the wheat from the chaff, and um, and and kind of really understand capability very clearly, uh, and where people fit. And that's why I think it's unique about pararescue is that, you know, pararescue initially in the in the Vietnam days was designed to rescue, you know, downed aviators in the jungle. Um, you know, they had the Jolly Green Giant fame as you know these giant H threes flying over the uh, triple canopy jungles mm -hmm. and putting a pararescue down a hoist down through the jungle under fire, and so. You know, that mission set was you know, kind of almost it's kind of linear compared to what they do now. And so now the guys, the expectation is they can integrate with teams. So special forces teams, SEAL teams, um, but also organically have the only designated rescue response for the military. And so, um, you know, the Marines do it, have trap teams. There's different kind of teams that can kind of uh, assemble to, you know, create recovery capability. But pararescue is the only you know, designated DOD function to do rescue as its primary job. And so um, the best way to put it, you know, for, uh, for folks that aren't familiar with it, it's, it's the 911 for, for the DOD. Um, you know, they'll, uh, they'll scuba dive, you know, they'll infiltrate that way or jump out with boats in the you know, middle of the night, um, you know, parachute into, you know, minefields like they did in Afghanistan, uh, fly in the back of helicopters, integrate with any platform. And so, um, you know, I'm not speaking for myself to say that, you know, I was, at, I'm, I'm talking about them right now. Mm -hmm. They are that. And uh, it's a, it's a really cool, it's, it's a really noble uh, mission as well. And it's something you can, you know, really feel good about that. You're, you're risking your life for others. And, um, you know, the, our motto is that others may live. And those guys demonstrate that, you know, even today, you know, they're deployed right now and, and doing the same thing. So. Yeah, a very, very noble calling. Absolutely. And um, I think in general, what you're talking about, if I read you correctly, is combat search and rescue, in essence. It is. That, yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what we do. And so 
but you know, um, pararescue as a whole, you know, extends past that. Like I said, they have the peacetime mission. And so we have uh, National Guard and reserve teams that, you know, are, are paid by states, not the reserves, obviously, the National Guard is. And, um, you know, some of the most sensational rescues, especially guys up in like Alaska, you know, parachuting on the side of a mountain and, and doing mass casualty movements of folks and mountain climbing, rescues off Mount McKinley. Uh, the Long Island guys in, in New York, you know, have a reputation for doing these, you know, really dangerous open ocean uh, parachute jumps into huge seas. I mean, the movie, um, uh, what was the movie called? Um, I think I know the one uh, you're talking the, about. Oh, The Perfect Storm. Sorry. Yes. Uh, those are the guys that jumped in and, and you know, um, you know, they, they lost a PJ on that mission. Um, but I remember reading these books and, and hearing these stories when I was a young man. Um, I held them and you know, these guys in the highest regard and I, I wanted to be like them. Um, it took me a while before I felt like one of them. Um, but I think I achieved it towards the end, but uh, it took me a while. You know what? That's a bit of humility there, uh, which which I think is is wonderful. Um, so tell me about once you went through that training. Um, you know, you went through the schoolhouse. Uh, tell me about becoming operational. Uh, what was yeah. that? What was that like? Did so I, I was stationed at Nellis Air Force Base, my first assignment, and um, <laughs> the the team didn't have a great reputation out there. Um, everyone gets their assignments at PJ School, and I was the only one that went to Nellis. And they were like, hey, good luck with that. And at the time, we were integrated with the helicopter squadron out there. And so it was the 66th Rescue Squadron. Um, and we deployed out to Turkey. So you had Northern Watch and Southern Watch. And you had uh, fighters that would basically fly and, and enforce these you know, parallels north and south to keep uh, Saddam Hussein kind of in this box. Right. And we flew out there to provide the CSAR package for the, the Northern mission. And... You know, I thought I was going to war and, you know, we had all this, you know, I had all these ammo, ammo radios and you know, grenades. And, um, you know, it was the first experience of deploying as a, as, a, um, as a unit going forward and really being at the precipice of crossing that line and, and being in harm's way. And so, you know, this is before the war. Um, and but I didn't do anything. You know, I spent I think it was four four months out there and, um, you know, had a good experience. I learned a lot. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to be tested and I want to, under, you know, I want to understand what it felt like to be, you know, really in harm's way. Um, not that I was, you know, seeking, uh, I guess I kind of was seeking danger, but, um, you know, not in an unhealthy way mm-hmm. and, uh, the opportunity to, to, uh, go to an overseas base popped up. And as a young guy, I volunteered. So I went to Okinawa and I spent a few years out there, uh, based out of, you know, uh, in Japan. And we would spend a lot of time in Korea. So we would forward to put a Korea and kind of do the same mission. So we were doing basically a, a CSAR mission for a lot of the assets we had. Um, there were flying existing missions, mm-hmm. but also um, if the war kicked off, you know, cause it's you know, kind of like, Hey, it's going to go down tonight. They're going to send the gorilla package and we're going to lose a lot of people and we're going to be very busy. And right. so you have these existing, uh, you know, um, O plans that, you know, all around the world, uh, we fell under that one. And mm-hmm. so during some of my time out there, um, I would also go to the Philippines. We'd do interrupts with them. And then when 9-11 happened, um, I spent a lot of time in the, in, uh, the Philippines for Operation uh, Enduring Freedom Philippines, which was kind of centered to get the Pacific kind of some play in the OEF. Um, mm-hmm. We were focused on, there were some American hostages out there. There was a couple called the Burns. They were missionaries. And so um, First Special Forces Group was 
you know, kind of heading up uh, doing uh, foreign internal defense with the Filipino Special Forces um, in the event they could do a hostage rescue. And so we lost a helicopter out there. We lost a 160th Chinook um, with a couple of my friends on there and, and, and the crew. Um, it had a mechanical failure and, and blew up over the water um, oh. near the island of Basilan. Um, everyone on board died. And so we four deployed to be basically now uh, a CSAR presence in, in the event of something else catastrophic would happen. Um, I spent, uh, like I said, I spent a couple of years out there. Um, I was able to do, uh, you know, we had a couple of rescues. We had F-15, the training off of Okinawa, that would spun out, rescue a pilot, and you feel good about rescuing a pilot out of the water. For sure. Um, but really, I hadn't, scra- I hadn't scratched the itch for um, doing uh, exciting things or dangerous things or testing myself in combat. And um, I'd never been shot at at this point. Um, you know, I had all the, I had all the right clothes, had all the right, you know, weapons, and I uh, had never tested myself. And so um, when you're in the military back then, it was kind of a roll of dice where you would get signed. And so you couldn't say, hey, I really want to go to war. I want to go to this unit. Mm-hmm. Um, you might go be an instructor or you might, uh, you know, get this assignment in the Pacific where, you, you know, you're not doing uh, what you want. And there was one unit that I knew I could um, find myself in, you know, a way to combat. And it was the 24th Special Tactics Squadron. And so this was a unit that historically had been like real senior guys that you know, had a lot of combat reps or real experienced guys that would go up there and they were the best of the best. And here I was a nobody, you know, I had no experience. I was young. I was, I think I was uh, 22 when I tried out and um, I flew out there for selection. Well, I first had to, you know, submit a package and the old stuff. I met all those, you know, entry requirements. And um, they usually didn't take guys as young as me. There's only a few that they had. And uh, I went out there. I did really well in my selection. So I did another selection. Um, and they sent you in for a board. And then they, you know, they, they kind of, they call them murder boards back then, or they just, um, you know, they're not, they're not nice in these boards, basically. They, you know, they want you to, to um, you know, they want you to make an ass of yourself. They want you to say the wrong things. And they want to jump down your throat and see how you handle the pressure of just this board setting. Mm-hmm. they've kind of gone away from that well, they have gone away from that in present day um is that but a good they selected it is yeah it is because we're we're hiring for the right attributes now it's not just this uh you know um this bias of, of creating you know replicas of ourselves we're looking for you know the, the term diversity gets thrown around a lot in, in the military and it's kind of it's it's funny because they're using diversity in the wrong context it's not about skin color it's about diversity of thought it's about what you bring to the table your upbringing all those different things and so yeah. They're doing that now. They're hiring, um, you know, folks that, you know, maybe are introverts that typically wouldn't have fit in within this, you know, the, you know, the locker room setting of the late nineties model of what, you know, these operators were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so not to completely derail, but, um, but yeah, so I, I went up there to Fort Bragg and um, then I had to go through another year of training. Um, so I'd already gone through two years. I'd already been a PJ for, you know, three years and here I'm going through training again. And, mm-hmm. um, well, before I went, they said, Hey, Chad, do you want to go? We, we need a guy to go to Afghanistan. We're short of a guy. Everyone's in Iraq right when Iraq war kicked off. And, you know, of course I jumped on the opportunity to go out there and, um, I went out there to, uh, to Bagram and I was doing combat search and rescue for uh, a specific, uh, SEAL team task force that was out there. And, you know, it was my first time going to Afghanistan. I was really excited. Um, I didn't do a whole lot, but I, you know, I kind of, uh, I, I scratched the itch of, of what I wanted to get involved with and I knew what was to come for me. And so I went through another year of training, um, a lot of advanced skills here, right? So 
um, a lot of the high-end training uh, stuff that you know people would never get otherwise. It's very expensive training. Um, we had about, I guess it was 18 of us that went through the training together. You know, they're all uh, you know really high-performing guys. Um, and then I spent the rest of my career there doing missions attached to SEAL teams and um, some of the higher-end army units. Um, and then also doing some clandestine stuff for a long time. I, I did that for about seven years um, all around the world. Um, and then I ended up leading uh, the training organization that I went through as a young man, as a 22-year-old. I, I ended up running that, that selection process and also the training um, and ensuring that I left it better than I found it. And then I, I culminated my career at the 24th uh, Special Tactics Squadron as the chief there. So I was a senior enlisted um, for about three years. And so I retired last year. Um, and yeah, so I, I'm, I'm leaving out a lot within that journey, but um, that's kind of the, the high-level uh, snapshot. Oh, I love it. And I'm keen to know, it. you mentioned that you go to a higher level of training and don't need to get into the nitty gritty, but I would love to know how that training is differentiated from some of the previous training that you had. Yeah, sure. So I, I think the biggest, uh, like you can go to a course, um, like you can go to a, a school and learn how to drive fast cars. Um, right. You know, anybody can, you got the money, you can go do it. Yeah. And you can become a really good or proficient, you know, pseudo race car driver based on how much money you can spend driving around this track and, and having a nice car. Um, I think the thing that distinguishes our guys and our process and, and some of the other, you know, similar processes that exist within the sister services is that feedback is kind of the, uh, the, the cornerstone of all this training is that it, we call it 360 feedback. And so that's feedback from your peers um, and it's unfiltered. And it's also feedback from instructors. And so, you know, people can say, oh, embrace feedback. You've never experienced feedback the way we give feedback. And um, if you are, uh, if you're a prick going through training, you're going to know about it from your peers and they're going to get anonymous feedback and you're going to face-to-face feedback. Hmm. And so what you, what you do with that feedback is really up to you. Right. And um, you can be arrogant and you can be, uh, you know, kind of self-assured and say, I don't need to change because I've always been this way. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can be reflective and um, say, Hey, this has been a, a blind spot of mine. They're giving me this free advice. I can change me better. And so the guys that can embrace that change and, and develop themselves are the guys that really thrive within, within that environment. And a good example is, you know, um, you know, CQB so close quarter combat or, or close quarter battle. Um, is where things are happening very quickly and you have to make very uh, quick decisions. Uh, you have to have the technical proficiency to put rounds on a target, but also um, adapt to the environment around you. Mm-hmm. And so what we see is that guys, when we, we give them feedback, you know, through those events, um, some guys will argue with you and then you play the video back for them and you watch how they receive feedback. And it kind of gives you a sense of how they're going to be um, in different situations like parachuting and, uh, you know, advanced parachuting for us was, you know, I, I, I was a skydiver, you know, technically a military skydiver. Um, I had about 60 jumps, maybe 70 jumps when I came up to that unit. Mm-hmm. I have a couple thousand now. Uh, I have way more awareness in the air now at 2000 than I did at, you know, 50, obviously. Right. But to go through training and get from 50 jumps to 100 and be maximum proficiency at 100 because they're giving you feedback on every single jump and they're, they're analyzing, you know, why did you take this pattern? Where did you fly your parachute? Uh, your exit, you know, here's your leg was here and all those different details. Um, 
if you can take that information and improve yourself on it, you're unstoppable. And, and I think that our guys, um, if they choose to do so, can transition to industry with the same kind of laser focus and say, you know, how do I become you know, the best at this, this skill? Um, they can do anything. They really can. And, um, and I've seen it. Uh, if they choose to do it, they'll, they'll dominate um, because they can collectively take a lot of negative feedback, which a lot of us thrive on, um, synthesize it and move forward and, and be better. Um, and in my life, you know, post-military, I was, um, I worked at an innovation institute, you know, previously, uh, to this current, current role. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm used to being around people that, that want feedback and, um, you know, they crave it or they'll accept it, embrace it and, and try to be better. And that's a performance mindset, right? It's a growth mindset, but it's also performance. And, um, it's not, uh, it's not prevalent the same way as it is in special operations on the outside. And um, that's disappointing for me because I'm used to being around, you know, the best, the best. And so you have to temper your expectations of what people are going to give you, um, what your return on investment is for feedback. And, you know, I read all these leadership books from people that have never led, you know, a lot of the leadership books you read, they've never led anything. There's some good nuggets. There's some good nuggets in there. Um, But, you know, I I really wonder, um, are they achieving the level of success that those high-end special operations units were able to do with a very small team of people mm-hmm. uh, within a very short, short period of time. Um, so I'll stop yapping my gums, let you talk. No, 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 no. That was, that was really interesting. And I have to ask um, the people that were perhaps arrogant or obstinate, the ones that didn't take the feedback, do you find that they also continue on? Um, like it, do you find that eventually they units, get weeded out? They won't make it. Yeah. So if if they can't if they can't take feedback, um, if they can't learn from you know that uh, um, you know the the subject matter experts that are around them, um, there's really not a place for them because um, you know they've peaked right. And so the guys that haven't peaked are the guys that continually grow. And and, and we we would find that. Sometimes the the oddest guys, the odd ducks in the group, were some of the best operators, you know. And um, some of the guys that if you saw them on the street, you would never guess they're operators, but they were uh, critical thinkers. Um, they would adapt to situations very quickly. Um, and you know, and the thing I'm leaving out the most in this conversation is that they're extremely brave too. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think that you know, sometimes you know, in my peer group, we kind of um, we take that for granted. Uh, but these guys are extremely brave to put their lives in line and do the the things that they're doing. Um, and so I, I can look, I can see that now as a, you know an older guy, you know, I've been retired for you know a year and a half. I can look back and, and look at them and say, man, yeah, you guys are um, are really impressive. I never saw myself that way, um, but I, I definitely um, hold them still in high regard and, uh, and 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 hope that everyone else recognizes you know kind of the the sacrifice it takes to. Um, you know, to jump out of an airplane in the middle of the night, and I'm not saying skydive, I'm saying to go into combat with very little bit of resources to get yourself out, knowing the dangers and choosing to do it and embracing it. It's not that they're, someone's telling them to do it. They want to do it. And um, those are different people, you know, um, mm-hmm. and it exists. It's not just, uh, you know, soft hasn't, hasn't cornered the market on that. It exists to a lot of career fields and um you know there's aviators i I think about a10 pilots you know they're the closest thing to soft within the air force um because those guys will fly 100 feet off the deck and they will risk their lives for others 
Um, and they have that warrior mindset. And um, that's why when you talk to soft guys, I mean, we love AC-130, obviously, um, especially within at tier one units, we love AC-130. But, uh, yeah. you know, if you're going to call a cast, you want that A-10 coming and that gun, man, <laughs> it's unmistakable. Uh, and, and, you know, those guys, they, and they know how, they know how cool they are too. So they, uh, they do, they do <laughs> shout out to one of my guests on this podcast, uh, Colonel Scott Campbell, uh, soup, who's just an amazing man. And, uh, and also to major, uh, Ridge Kelso flick, um, both amazing, amazing a 10 pilots and, and dear friends to this podcast. So, um, yeah, it, no, the, the a 10 is just amazing. And, you know, they've, the, the Air Force has tried to kill it so many times. I hope it, it continues it, it, to be out there, it, it, you yeah. know, and, and you were, you were on the end where you, you wanted them there. Um, I don't know if there's another aircraft, like you said, the AC-130 is pretty cool, but I don't know if there's another aircraft that can really pony up like the A-10 can. AC-130 is a, uh, man, is a super capable platform. And I'll give you an example of the A-10. I was in Afghanistan. Um, we were, we would do what we, you know, what we call a, a ground assault force. And so you'd have a vehicle uh, drop off. So you drop the vehicles off. A lot of times you leave, you know, someone with a heavy, you know, heavy weapon, maybe it's a track vehicle that you, you can partner with, but then you walk in an offset so that you don't spook the enemy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you drive up, they're going to shoot you off. And right. a lot of conventional forces or even tier two forces are going to, they're going to power through and we're going to go in stealth. And so we, we want to, we don't want to be compromised. And so we patrol our way in. And um, we were in a, a uniquely hostile part of Afghanistan, and one that the U.S. forces hadn't gone into in years. They kind of left it to isolate. And, and what, you know, the enemy had done is they dug in all these fortified fighting positions. And, and basically, they, I mean, they owned everything. And so they owned all bridges going in. Um, and our job was to press in undetected and get to these targets. And um, so one night uh, we had, you know, we would, and here's the distinction for tier one is that we would always have dedicated aircraft. And so a lot of soft forces, you know, special operations, um, they would, you know, if they got into a troops in contact situation, they would call assets to, you know, bail them out and drop bombs and all those things. Right. We would have dedicated assets every time we would do anything. And so that's, we became spoiled. And I'll admit, you know, we were, we were the spoiled kids. Um, and perhaps, you know, we weren't as good as, you know, at fighting as we thought we, you know, cast safer butts almost, you know, all the time. Um, but one particular night we were walking in, we had AC-130 overhead. We had also, you know, we had some, um, you know, we had MQ-9 as well. We, you know, we had our normal stack and we were just walking. So we had about a, you know, a two, two and a half hour movement. And there was a high value target uh, nearby that another assault force was going to go hit. And so they took all the assets, you know, within the area, pulled them to this high value target. And uh, which is normal, like, okay, they deserve it. They're going to go and they're going to get in a fight. So they're going to take the AC-130. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, luck would have it. We, the position we stopped at to kind of make sense of things uh, was surrounded by these compounds. And, um, you know, things escalated very quickly and um, we ended up getting our, our, our butts shot off. And um, we took a lot of uh, fire from all three, you know, all three different corners of these compounds, heavy machine guns, RPGs, and we're stuck. And, uh, you know, there's, I mean, we were completely outnumbered because I was part of a reconnaissance team that came in. It was, uh, I think it was six or seven of us mm-hmm. and um, yeah, we're stuck. And so the combat controller was, was back with the main assault force. Um, they couldn't press to us and really they, they wouldn't have been able to do anything anyways, because there was, you know, these fortified you know, fighting positions on, on high walls. 
Right. And um, so we end up bounding back and we get some A-10s that just happened to be in the area. And they came in and I, you know, I'd, I'd been on a bunch of, you know, close air support exercises, you know, I've seen them drop, you know, live munitions. Um, but I'd never seen it that close uh, to save my butt. And um, that wall of fire that came up, you know, from <laughs> that, that Gatling gun and, and the subsequent bombs that dropped on those was, uh, it was, it was inspiring. It was also, uh, you know, it had to have been a wake up call for the enemy that, you know, this is what you get from, you know, poking the bear. Um, this wasn't even the target we were going after. And, um, you know, they, they probably, you know, they thought we were coming from them probably they had to engage, but, um, the A-10 saved our lives again, you know, AC-130 saved our lives almost every night, but, um, but yeah, I got a lot of love for the A-10 community. Yeah. I, I don't know if there's a platform that can replace it, but as you mentioned, you also had MQ-9s up there and that's a, a relatively new capability that exists that um, operators didn't yeah. have before, you know, 10, 15 well, I mean, you launched ago. that Hellfire though, and then you just got an ISR platform and, uh, yeah. You know, a lot of times, and what we saw in Iraq, especially when things were hot and heavy in Iraq, was that, you know, we would drop 500 pound bombs on top of people's heads and they would still survive. And you're like, how does this happen? Um, you know, the universe is, is funny that way. Um, uh, what, what was his name? Um, it was uh, AMZ. I'm in uh, Zarqawi. Oh, uh, yeah. Al Zarqawi? Um, not Zarqawi, Zarqawi. Uh, mm-hmm. We dropped, um, I forget which you used, we dropped on him, two on him. He was still alive when we came out there. Wow. Uh, so, you know, you look at some of these giant weapons are very, you know, you drop a GDM on someone's house and you think that, you know, you've, you've killed everyone and it doesn't. It's, it's really, sometimes it's bizarre the way things work. Um, and then the smallest things will, you know, be lethal. And so we've, we've learned a lot about munitions. We've learned a lot about reducing collateral damage. And I think that's another distinction that I'd like to point out is that soft is really good about being uh, surgical and mm-hmm. precise when they do things. And, you know, me, you know, I, I care about people. Um, I care about, you know, human life when I was in, um, and, a, and a lot of guys, you know, do and did, um, they're more mature. And so they were also recognized that a successful mission sometimes is not firing a shot. And so, you know, some of the, the sexiest missions, you know, when you go in and completely blacked out, completely silent, and you wrap the person up you're trying to grab without, you know, firing a single shot, it doesn't sound as cool to talk about afterwards. Um, but, the, you know, those are the biggest successes on the battlefield. And oh, when yeah. you can slip in while everyone's sleeping and zip tie them and put a bag in their head and, and pull them out, um, you know, and their kids are still asleep, you know, that those are the things that are uh, really define what special operations became over the past 20 years. And so, it's a, it's a pretty cool capability. You don't always have to blow the front door down um, to kind of get the job done. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it always amazed me from what I know of what special operations do. You have already made this, the distinction about having like tiers of support, depending on what group you are, but um, you know, you have to go in with what you carry. I assume a lot of the time. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, <laughs> and so you got to walk a long way and, you know, I know from just carrying a pistol and some extra mags, you know, like, I mean, weight adds up really quick and that's just a tiny little thing compared to all the different pieces of kit that yeah, I, I became hyper-focused on going ultralight, uh, at one period right. of my, my career, right. you know, to a Dutch, to my own detriment, honestly. So I, I went on a, uh, I won't tell you where it was, but we, we walked a long way. We walked, uh, man, it was like six or seven hours through the mountains and we get to this, um, isolated village that we we're going to raid. Uh, there was some really, really bad people in there. And, um, I had 
um, asked our interpreter to carry one of my litters. And so it was a Skedco, it was basically a rolled out plastic litter I can drag people and hoist them with. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had a med rec on and, and we were humping to the you know, we were humping to the hard parts of the mountains. And um I had to distribute my my weight out across the forest, but a lot of the the seals I was with refused to carry anything except you know their charges and their ammo. And they were going as light as they could too, because everyone kind of want nobody wants to fall out on this this hump. And so and I've got more weight than anybody on my back. And, um, and so I was trying to downsize everything I could carry in my ruck to, to get as light as I could. So I, I didn't want to be the guy that fell on the ruck, you know, right. and you never know who it's going to hit. You sprain an ankle, you're screwed, you know, and yeah, yeah. people think that breaking the leg is bad. Sprain an ankle is just as bad. And oh, so, yeah. oh yeah. Um, I, you know, and I'm the only medical capability. And so it's like, man, I, I was, I started tailoring things down as so I was carrying what we call polis litters. And polis litters are basically just, uh, it's like a, you know, um, a hard durable fabric with four handles on it. And you mm-hmm. throw a person in there, but you know, when you have dead weight, you know, from an operator who's shot with full kit, it's a different kind of CrossFit workout, you know, than people have endured. And, oh, yeah. um, and especially when you're dehydrated, you know, you're mentally exhausted. Um, and I ran into that. I took multiple casualties in the target. Um, the interpreter, uh, dumped my skedco didn't know where it was so it was lost forever oh, no. and all i had was this this polis litter and um the guy that i had was shot through legs and i had to um use some you know splinting material from around the the compound to keep his legs straight but um we were getting shot on the way out and we're carrying him sliding on the side of a mountain and they just they just become the most intense workouts you could ever uh you know dream up and, you know, you dig deep and you find, you know, superhuman strength to get to the exfil platform, but um, it, it was miserable. And it was all because I was shaving weight. You know, I should have had a pole litter, you know, the ones that extend, um, we had a, we used to call them Israeli litters because they're the ones that you know, came up with the first concept, but um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I should have had that, but you know, candidly, you know, you're talking about adding another, you know, 10, 15 pounds to your back. And when you're climbing through a mountain and you're going through, you know, 10,000 feet, um, ounces make pounds and and pounds you know they, they, they'll kill you hey everyone i'd like to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor cubic mission and performance solutions cubic provides network c4 isr capabilities for defense intelligence security and commercial missions Cubic is revolutionizing the ultra-portable satellite communications industry through their range of the world's most portable and secure satellite antennas. Engineered to revolutionize data and voice communications for allied forces, Cubic's inflatable satellite antennas and deployable cellular solutions provide industry-leading portability, fast setup times, and reduced operational costs. Easy to deploy with high bandwidth throughput and low cost of ownership, the Gator inflatable satellite antennas are deployed by allied forces and aid agencies in some of the most extreme environments on the planet. These portable and secure satellite antennas deliver up to a 50% reduction in packout weight and volume compared to deployable rigid antennas of similar size. Cubic's inflatable satellite antennas are ideal for first-in deployments, remote applications, and contingency scenarios. Cubic's inflatable satellite antennas take as little as 30 minutes to set up. They are 50% lighter when compared to equivalent VSAT antennas, 
They maintain performance in high winds and extreme temperatures. Their smaller profile results in reduced shipping and satellite access costs, and they support the KU, C, X, and the KA bands. To learn more about these incredibly versatile products, please visit cubic.com. Now let's get back to our guest. So yeah, I learned some hard lessons. Um, you know, kind of go into technology too, though, as things have continued to get smaller and lighter. Um, but there's some things you just can't um, reduce. Uh, radios have gotten smaller. They're way more capable. Battery technology has, uh, has gone le- leaps and bounds in the past 20 years, you know, to what we, we used to have to carry. Uh, the durability of batteries as well, because batteries, you know, really is the crux of everything. Um, you know, and then, you know, we talk about some of the manned packable platforms that we, we used to carry in for reconnaissance. Now reconnaissance teams can launch, you know, a quadcopter, they can launch a fixed wing platform and have really extended standoff capability that keeps them out of, you know, these threat areas um, and still gives them, actually probably gives them higher fidelity on those targets where they used to have to have, you know, high-end glass and and look at things and and do data transmission over these tough books that required SATCOM set up with a big SATCOM radio and a a tough book. Um, Now we're able to pass, you know, way more data more effectively, um, you know, using a myriad of things. But, um, you know, I was, you know, I was uh, exposed to those things during my time doing uh, the, what we call low visibility stuff. And I transitioned to my life, you know, on the outside, you know, with the technology, um, understanding what the warfighter needs, um, understanding you're always going to want to miniaturize everything to, you know, to the 10th degree, but, um, you know, what is in the realm of possible and and, um, what, what is really going to enable that mission? Um, What is going to change their TTPs? Uh, What is, what technology exists that's going to completely change the way they fight? Um, And, you know, that's where I find myself, you know, present day is building a capability that, um, you know, candidly, when I talk to folks, whether they be aviators or ground components, um, you know, this is going to change the way they fight. It's going to change the mission plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we'll get into it in a second, but uh, I- I'm really excited that I have the, you know, kind of unique uh, perspective of, you know, doing 17 combat deployments, uh, not having technology where I needed it, um, and at times having, you know, having the tech, um, but, you know, coming on to the outside and looking at, small business and how fast they can go to iterate things, how, you know, how quickly they can fail and, and pick themselves back up um, to generate these uh, capabilities for the warfighter. And, um, and, and, you know, I was, I found myself really frustrated throughout my career, uh, kicking and screaming for things, right. I wanted something that enabled me, um, you know, it could be as simple as a smaller, lighter, you know, weapon. Um, we had, uh, we went from these big four sixteens to MP sevens and, and guys laughed them off. But when you carry, 20 pounds in your back and now you can carry this small, you know, submachine gun. Um, it empowers you to do your job more effectively. Um, and so suppressors got lighter and smaller lasers got smaller and, and better, uh, can reach out further more accurately. Um, you know, things became dual purpose. Um, but a lot of the innovations, the tech innovations that happen within special operations and initially were commercial solutions that people repurposed, um, and because they were immediate solutions, right? Right. When we when we asked uh, the big DoD to fulfill our requirements, you know, they'd say, "Oh, it's a great. That's a great idea. We're gonna we're gonna iterate with you know for the next three years and we'll figure something out." We we needed it immediately, right? We if if we're asking for it, we needed it for the next deployment. And 
what we found was, you know, small teams of guys with big budgets could go directly to industry and say, we need this and they'll make you a one-off. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, those companies, it's not really incentivized for them because they need to sell things at scale, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. A so one-off isn't going to do any, do them any good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's the prestige of doing it, you know, if we're soft, sure. um, but you got to scale it. And right. a lot of times technologies that exist within soft do scale, you know, to the general purpose forces. That's what soft also is tasked to do is research and development. Um, and at those tier one units, their job is to do RDT&E, um, you know, for tactics and for technologies. And once they kind of vet those things, they do go to scale and they go to you know the big army. Um, and so, yes, so that, you know, that's kind of my experience leading up to where I'm at today. And, um, a lot of, a lot of great lessons learned. Um, and, you know, also, you know, as anyone that's listened to this will know, if you surround yourself with people that are better than you, um, you will grow and you will be become the best version of yourself. And, and I benefited from having a long time being surrounded by people that were much better than me. Um, and I, I continue to try to do that, you know, on, on this side of, uh, of the military. And so uh, I'm with a, a group now that um, are teaching me things that I, I didn't have exposure to. And, and I'm, I'm getting that uh, experiential MBA right now. So um, it, it's, it's kind of cool position to be in on this side of, of the military. Good for you. No, I, I love that. And there's so much in your career that I want to ask you about. And I hope that in future chats that we can get into some of those experiences, because I want this to be very much a catch-all episode where you learned a little bit about you and your experiences, but it's a perfect segue, what you just mentioned, because before we go into your current work, you were at the Innovation Institute. And I think it's important to talk a little bit about that. And I think what you just said kind of referenced some of that, but that's important as a segue before we talk about what you're doing today, because I think it formulates some of your approach to you working at Firestorm. So I was at an innovation institute when I retired from the military. So it was a nonprofit. Um, I was working directly with AFRL munitions director. And so the folks that, you know, the scientists and engineers are building, you know, the next gen uh, munitions um, and getting exposure to things that I, you know, I hadn't seen before, um, you know, and I share with any transitioning military uh, guy or gal, um, the most important thing to do before you get out of the military is go uh, moonlight with the contracting office for a couple months, because um, that will give you some re- real value on the outside and understanding, um, you know, how to jump those hoops, but also, um, you know, how to make things happen uh, within the constraints of what the, the FAR is. So, uh, you know, those regulations that basically dictate, you know, how money is spent and, and how fast it can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, in special operations, you know, I, I, we're, we get a perception of being prima donnas and, and it's justified, you know, cause we want things immediately. Right. We, right. we want it now. Yeah. We want the best. Um, and in turn, the military expects the same out of us, right. You know, go do these high missions. Yeah. And, and a lot of times people think that, uh, the, you know, the, the budgets for soft or, um, you know, these inflated budgets and, and it's, and it's kind of disproportional. What I'd offer you know, them if they actually look into it, it's the greatest economy within the DOD. You spend more money per operator than you do anyone else in the DOD. Absolutely. 100%. Right. But when you can deploy a team of 12 to 18 people into space that usually takes you know, several hundred with all the logistics to back up that several hundred, now you're talking a couple more hundred on top of that for logistics, the movement, you're talking disproportionate amounts of money. And so when you can deploy a team into space and they're self-sufficient, they have the best gear, 
and they're going to get the job done. Uh, they're probably not going to make the news, you know, with an international incident, hopefully, um, and, and, and get out of there in a, in a tighter timeline. Um, it's one of the greatest economies that exists within the U.S. military. And, um, and Canada has the same things. You know, GTF-2 is an extremely capable uh, special operations force. And, um, you know, they're a tier one force, um, you know, if, you know, apples to apples. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Canada knows what they have with GTF-2. And so uh, you're not going to deploy, you know, the entire Canadian military. You're going to send these guys out and they're going to go, um, you know, do the hostage rescue or, or whatever specialized mission they're doing and come back. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully nobody hears about it. Um, and if you spent a couple million bucks, you probably saved 50 million on the backside for, you know, cause flying a C-17, I forget the, the, I think it's like, uh, to get the thing up and running fuel moving point A to point B. I mean, it's something insane. Like, you know, uh, you know, three to $4 million. I could be way off on this. I mean, you know, probably correct me, but, um, just to move the aircraft. And so that's the crew that's the gas you now. Um, so if you can move people into space, uh, cheaply, um, and once they get there, they can do anything, you know, under the sun because they have all these skills, you know, it, it is an economy. So, Yeah, well, for sure. And so that leads me to ask you, what is your focus? Well, from an operator perspective, you know, you kind of mentioned some of the things about batteries and lighter weapons, lighter kit, all of that stuff. Um, your work in the Innovation Institute obviously gave you a greater perspective and insight into what's out there in the well, show me what, what was and wasn't happening, honestly. Right. And, right. and so I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a quitter. Um, so I'll fight through and try to make things successful as best I can. But, um, you know, there's diminishing returns on some of these things. And, you know, there's capability that, that needs to happen today to make us uh, competitive within the space. Because, you know, my combat experience was fighting unfair fights by design, right? Right. This next fight's uh, going to be the closest thing we have to a fair fight. And I hear people online always talking, oh, no one can touch us in the military. Like, man, you are blind to what's going on right now. We have never fought on the ground without owning the air above us right. uh, since I, I think it was uh, Korea, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've never experienced that. And our generation hasn't. And then when you're talking about when someone can flip a switch and turn your GPS off and all of a sudden all of those niceties don't exist, and maybe those aircraft can't launch because of surface air threats. Um, you're not getting cast. You're on your own. And you better be good at fighting man on man. And those are things that we've had proven to be big challenges for us. And even the best of the best, right? And so mm-hmm. um, so I, I started to see kind of those, those gaps, those capability gaps. Um, and, you know, I also looked at small business and, you know, some of the things that drive small business away from DOD from working with them. And uh, it's difficult to work with the DOD. Um, without my background and kind of my Rolodex of people, I wouldn't have access to touching the folks that I need to. And so if you're a a small business and and maybe you're a really small one, and maybe it's three or four people and you're designing a technology you think fits within the DOD, but no one will listen to you, it dies. And if you get funding initially and you don't get a follow, you know, influx of cash, you're, you're dead. And so, um, when I left the innovations too, I, I did exactly one year. You know, I promised myself immensely I was going to do a year and, and kind of understand the world differently. I did. I learned a bunch. Um, you know, there was a, uh, a successful uh, former founder of Citadel Defense, uh, Dan Maggi, who um, was introduced through a friend. And he decided that he was tired of being retired from his exit from Citadel. Uh, and he wanted to do it again. And so 
he called me uh, with another uh, you know, co-founder and said, hey, look, we'd love you to join us to build a low-cost cruise missile. And if you said build a cruise missile, I would have said, maybe I'm not your guy. Um, mm-hmm. Low cost uh, was, was unique. Mm-hmm. And then my next question is, how do you do low cost? Aren't the bigs doing it? Mm-hmm. And the approach that they described to me was modular. And um, modular open system approach is something that the Air Force has been you know, kicking and screaming and saying, we want this. Right. Um, the example is a lot of the, the systems that exist, whether it be weapons platforms or other, are proprietary. The way the, you know, the communication systems work, you, know, the, you, know, you can't add something to it. Um, so it, it kind of makes these things one trick ponies and they're very expensive and the life cycles of them go on, to, you know, the programs and maintenance goes on for years and that's how the big companies make their money. Mm-hmm. And so an example of, um, you know, a system that is open has been described to me as, you know, it's the Tomahawk. And so they initially, the Navy kind of wrote into the initial design to say, hey, look, we need to make sure that this thing. Um, we can we can have open source platform and and continue to iterate throughout the life cycles of this mission, mm-hmm. and um, so the Air Force came up with this thing called the the GRA. Maybe the Air Force didn't come up with it. Maybe it's always existed, but it was introduced to me through the Air Force of the government reference architecture. And so, basically, what this is going to do is to say to industry, you need to make sure things communicate effectively with and and play nice with others, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we, we decide we want to put a different uh, PNT solution within a war, you know, warhead design, um, it needs to be able to, to, to integrate and work with this thing. And so that's, a, you know, that's an inflection point for you know, the, the defense uh, industries that support the, you know, the DoD because they haven't been mandated to do that. And so this modular open source approach uh, takes that to the next step. And weapons open system architecture, it's called WOSA. You, see here, you hear WOSA and MOSA a lot. Um, are things that we're going to design this thing in the initial phases of this. And so, uh, you know, we called it a, a low cost cruise missile at first. Oh, so I'll back up. So I, I agreed to join these guys. And so I, I had the startup and, um, and, and, and that is firestorm labs. It's firestorm labs. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and you know, the, the CEO, Dan, you know, he's mentioned to me, he said, Hey, look, uh, small business, the reason they're so effective and they scare everyone is because they go fast and they break things along the way. And, mm-hmm. That is exactly why they're so successful. And it's the exact environment that I wanted to be a part of. I just didn't know it. And, um, you know, I could stay in kind of the doldrum of being a part of the, you know, um, you know, the big DOD and, and kind of trying to, you know, I guess, you know, the euphemism uses, you know, um, you know shuffle of ductures on Titanic. And, uh, you know, but so I, I wanted to be a part of something that's going just as fast as the way I think. And, um, I joined that team. And so what we, we found out that you know, we, we have is it's not a low cost cruise missile. It's a mission, mission adaptable platform that can do anything the user defines. And so me as a special operator, I just mentioned those guys go into space and they're an economy um, because they can do anything. If we can build a system that is like a Lego set for capability and you decide you want to fly an EW payload, you put that bad boy in there and it weighs X, you move the wings here and the graphic interface will tell you exactly where to put them. It's a modular design. You build it and you launch it. And so the question that gets asked all the time is, you know, how are you going to launch it? We're going to launch right. it from every existing platform that's already out there. And so, uh, you know, we talk about catapult launch or more launch, we're going to do it all. Um, and we can, you know, we can, we can make this thing work with every platform that's out there because we're designing it from the, the ground. And we're also using added manufacturing and rapid prototyping with uh, 3D printing, right? So um, 
we're going to launch it from the CLT as well. And some, some of the folks you talk to, you know, have these platforms on board, AC-130 um, and some other dissimilar aircraft. Um, but we'll launch it out of a common launch tube. And, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, um, Kelso uh, was on your podcast. You know, we talked to him about, you know, how do we launch these things off the, uh, the bottom of A-10? And, you know, he's a forward-leaning guy. Um, he wants to change the world, and he's going to because he thinks that way. And if we can continuously print these things, we're going to print. It'll take us 24 hours to print one system. They can continuously print, you know, forever. Um, and he wants to, you know, fly multiple sorties in the Pacific from an island chain. We'll load him up. He can launch, you know, uh, you know, 15 of these things. Um, and what the ranges we're talking about are the distinguishing capabilities. We're talking about 200 miles plus. And so the existing loader munitions that are in the inventory are usually between a 20 and 30 K range uh, for the, some of the higher end ones. And uh, if we can reach 200 nautical miles, you're talking about teams that can be on you know, disparate island chains and really affect things within the Pacific. Um, but, you know, also in the Ukraine, you look at the systems that are getting fielded out there, um, you know, the, the switchblades are out there, you know, obviously stingers, javelins, all those, but, to have something else in the, in the inventory that you can launch a lot of um, and overwhelm an air defense system and actually get get rounds on target to enable those high-end aircraft, you know, the fourth and fifth gen systems to get across um, is really going to change the way we, we fight. Um, and our enemies know that if we can launch a hundred systems, they're going to have to spend a lot of money to shoot those things down. And when they shoot them down, they're also showing their hand of where they're sitting. Exactly. And so, this is a disruptive technology, um, you know, and, and we're, we're looking at warhead design. How do we get more bang for our buck? But really the, the bottom line is we're looking to achieve a thousand dollars per pound. And um, if we can do that, um, we don't compete with the big boys. They, they'll still make, you know, their million dollars a shot. Um, but we, that's the price point that we want to get into a, a cost of goods. And so if we can do that, um, you know, we're part of something special and something that will change uh, it will change ground combat, but it'll also enable the Air Force and some of these, um, these some of these O plans that they're designing right now um, for affordable mass. So affordable mass is the concept that uh, you know they want to see come to fruition. Um, but affordable is is very subjective, and so um, <laughs> right. we we want to make a, affordable <laughs> a reality um, in a, in a real sense that um, gets these systems into the hands of the folks that need them most. And so. Um, you know, I, I'm, I can feel good uh, being a part of what I'm, I'm doing now because I know where it's going to go and the hands that I'll be in eventually. Um, and it'll be in the hands of guys like me um, that needed this, you know, uh, as we were on the cusp of, of preparing for what the guys are facing now with threats to our east and our west. Wow. Chad, I love it. I think, you know, if there was a way to kind of cap off this episode, that was it because it gets the juices flowing for our next one where we talk a little bit more in depth about what you guys are doing at Firestorm Labs and how you are planning to execute on this and and also some of the challenges that you're having because this podcast is global. And so part of what we do is hopefully connect people together to a common goal. So um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good, um, you know, point too that, when you're building something that's affordable, some of the entry points for these systems um, aren't as, as accessible for certain countries for foreign military sales. Right. And when you look at ISR, the the lack of ISR within let, let's call it South America, mm-hmm. um, you know, this doesn't have to be a munition. It can also be a sensing. It can also be an ISR platform. And if you can get into an, a platform that can fly that far and that long, um, you know, at that price point. 
it's going to open up doors for for countries that that wouldn't have these capabilities otherwise and so or would have them but wouldn't use them because they don't want to you know to break them and candidly i've I've felt that too and so (laughs) you make a great point about the the you know the the global sense of this conversation um this is more than just the united states this is this is broader than that so yeah, well, I love it. And I'm excited for our next chat because I would love to get deeper into this and and love to kind of hear some of the headway that you're making and uh, kind of where where this will all lead. You know, you've you've given us a beautiful snapshot now, but I think uh, I think there's more to flush out here if if you're happy to come back. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to um, kind of get into the nitty gritty of, you know, some of those, those experiences downrange that potentially can um you know, segue nicely into to industry and some of the things that we're building out. Um, but you know, also there's there's some sensational stuff that we can talk through and and captivate some folks. But um, I'm I'm all over it because I know your combat stories um, from chatting with you previously. I, there are some really really interesting ones there, and I am totally excited to give our listeners an opportunity to hear what operators like yourself have experienced. Um, yeah, I look so, forward to it. Yeah, thank you so much. Chad McCoy of Firestorm Labs. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you and looking forward to our next chat. Jody, man, this is awesome. I appreciate connecting with you. No, is, uh, hey. It's good to know you. Yeah, really good to know you too, Chad. Like I said, you know, I, I like making friends as I go. So awesome. Thanks, Jody. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. That everybody was Chad McCoy with Firestorm Labs. And if you have any questions for us or for Chad, please reach out to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com and we'll do our best to accommodate. And we look forward to seeing you on another episode of Go Bold. Have a great day, everyone. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.